This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. This is Chris Milke, your host of Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today on our show by Dr. Benedek Lang. Dr. Lang is the head of the department at the Budapest University of Technology and Economics at the Department of Philosophy and History of Science. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. One of the reasons why I wanted to invite you to be on our show is the fact that uh, you've done a lot of work on medieval magic. I wanted to start off the interview with a very sort of general question about the types of magic and even to a lesser extent the magicians that we can speak about in the Middle Ages. Now this is a very tricky and problematic question, the typology of magic, because the first thing I had to decide in the beginning of my research is exactly how I'm going to classify uh, various types of magic. Because as everyone knows, defining magic is extremely problematic. There are many definitions of magic, but all of them are problematic. And we can't really follow this or that definition. It's much easier to define uh, sub-branches, sub-categories of magic. So it was exactly the issue with which I had to start my research. And, uh, of course, I read the, the big books, the big authors on magic. But this was, in this very respect, it was not very helpful. So what I did is that I found a few doctoral theses by English and American students who just defended their doctoral dissertation. And I emailed them and uh, they sent me their uh, manuscripts. And um, it was in their doctoral dissertation where I found a helpful classification of magic, which I could follow in my own book. So basically what I did following them was that uh, I set up a threefold classification and I said that we have natural magic image magic and ritual magic. I'm going to explain what these categories mean. And uh, I tried to decide uh, whenever I had a magic text, I tried to decide to which category the given text belongs. And before I say anything about this classification, I have to emphasize that if you deal with late antique material or if you deal with early modern material, this threefold classification doesn't really apply. So this is only good for the, let's say, 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, because this is the period when we can more or less classify various branches of magic, various texts of learned magic into these categories. But of course, these categories are not clear-cut. They are also quite problematic. We have texts which belong at the same time to ritual magic and image magic, or natural magic and medicine. So it's not uh, that beautiful as it sounds, but still it's uh, quite a helpful classification. There has to be some blurring of the lines, though, where some sort of magic is natural but also has image magic elements to it as well. So how do you go about deciding in which category one particular sub-branch belongs in? Okay, there is a a fairly good consensus in the uh, secondary literature that, uh, for example, the Liber Aggregationis attributed to Albertus Magnus is a major text, a very important text of natural magic. Of course, we have a few images in that. By image, we mean talisman. So an image which turns to a supernatural agent. 
might be a demon, might be an angel, might be a spirit. But still, most of the of the text belongs to what we call natural magic. Natural magic operates with uh, occult qualities, secret correspondences of uh, various items of nature, stones, parts of the human body, parts of various animals, trees, celestial configurations, and so on and so forth. So natural magic concentrates on the correspondences of all these things. And by the word natural, authors try to emphasize that this is not demonic. There are no demons Mm -hmm. in it. So you see that this is not an entirely descriptive category. It's a sort of argumentative category. What I'm doing is natural. Don't blame me. You shouldn't suspect that I'm doing some forbidden activity because it's all natural. It's almost like uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, some of the theologians were not so enthusiastic about that. And they said that this is not so natural as it sounds. And then we have the second category is image magic, which operates with talismans. Again, many of the authors emphasize that these are just normal talismans. You shouldn't suspect that we have demons here, even though by the images, by the characters, authors usually named spirits. But these spirits are, of course, not demons, but like uh, um, completely normal everyday spirits, even angels. And, of course, some of the image texts were clearly forbidden and banned. And other image magic texts were quite widespread in the medieval manuscripts. So very often, and this leads us to the second question, very often we see such magic texts, which were sort of dangerous in the Middle Ages, we see them scattered in various medieval manuscripts, student handbooks, and other places where originally we wouldn't expect them uh, turning up. And the third category is ritual magic. It's full of prayers. These are usually prayer books, actually, but prayers to angels, or demons. And uh, in this category, we have openly demonic texts, which are uh, full of malign aims and elements, how to destroy others, how to destroy cities, how to gain the love of a specific woman by various tricky means. And this was clearly forbidden. It might have been widespread, but by today, we only have a few copies of such texts because they didn't circulate very openly. But we have the other category, angel magic, which was much more widespread, and the authors of which argued that, look, we turn to angels, Uh, you shouldn't condemn us, because it's all, if not natural, it's all innocent. And texts of angel magic, in quotation marks, became quite widespread, and we have many copies, beautiful copies, of these texts. So they circulated, if not openly, but still not, they were not, they were condemned by Thomas Aquinas and many Mm -hmm. other, many other authors. Uh, theologians who were clearly aware of the of the content of these texts, but still they could survive, and we have uh, many such copies survived from the Middle Ages. I think a lot of sort of popular perceptions of how magic worked in the medieval period is our understanding of things like the witchcraft trials of the 17th and 18th centuries wherein magic is something that we think of all sorts of persecution, all sorts of demonic black magic. But from what you're saying and from other conversations I've had with uh, other medievalists on the topic, it seems that there there clearly was a category of demonic black magic, necromancy, whatever you choose to call it, but also a lot of um, everyday, very practical spells or prayers regarding health. 
Yes. That may not have been officially sanctioned by the church. Exactly. If we take a look at manuscripts, the content of which is clearly medical, medical, so scientific, even in these manuscripts, we find spells for uh, various health purposes. So the, the limits, the borderline between accepted science and magic, let it be richer, is not that clear. So I entirely agree with what you have just said, that even though clearly demonic magic uh, existed, uh, this was not the major part of medieval magic. The major part is uh, what we can call uh, natural magic, image magic, and the angelic type of ritual magic was something that was, uh, if not tolerated, but at least something that was, even though sometimes condemned, not necessarily destroyed. You mentioned earlier student handbooks with regards to these sorts of spells, and one of the questions that I wanted to ask was about what sort of people are these? What sort of folks are reading these texts and practicing this sort of thing? So whenever we say magician in the Middle Ages, we have to imply a quotation mark, of course. Uh, So these are not magicians in the way we imagine them uh, today. Richard Kikefer, one of the leading scholars on medieval magic, uses the expression of clerical underworld. And with this, uh, he implies that in the Middle Ages there were many students, clerics, who didn't have a stable income and who were educated enough, of course, and they had to be uh, educated since uh, they had to write, but they were sort of without uh, a stable position. So they started copying magic texts. They started providing services uh, for uh, various noblemen and other people who who needed their help uh, in the field of magic. And uh, to this category belong all those sources that survived uh, from the Middle Ages. Now, in my own research, which concentrated more on uh, the Central European, East Central European area, I found that uh, here people were belonging to a somewhat higher social stratum. I didn't really use the expression clerical underworld because it was not so underworld. Mm -hmm. These were normal university students, sometimes university professors, just like you and me, who were reading, copying, and sometimes practicing medieval magic texts. Of course, it was not only in the context of university that we have uh, magic texts survived, but also in monastic context. So uh, medieval monks uh, were copying and sometimes practicing magic texts, and also in royal courts, where uh, not only in East Central Europe, but also in Western Europe, a great number of magic texts were prepared. Various magicians, in quotation marks, lived and uh, they provided their services to their seniors, just as astrologers were living in uh, in the 15th century, basically, in every serious royal court, there was uh, at least one or two mm-hmm. astrologer, sometimes even a magician, who was sometimes executed, sometimes not. But what we see is that whenever we have a problem and uh, a magician is executed, like Jean de Bar in Paris, there were always some political reasons involved. So even though the explanation uh, was related to magic, in in fact, it was not the magic practice that was the main reason. There were some some other reasons. So there there were practical considerations. I think one of the things that really impresses me uh, about this is that uh, amongst the sort of male literate population, this is something that seems to be fairly widespread amongst all sorts of social classes. 
having the court magician to consult. I mean, it sounds like if one was executed, I doubt that the position would be vacant very long. <laughs> I don't really know, uh-huh. uh, but uh, probably not because there was a real demand for such a service. If we take a look at the manuscripts themselves, we see that magic frequently offered tools, means for such objectives that a medieval courtier or even the ruler might have needed. Uh, for example, in some texts, we have prayers which help the ruler to figure out the hidden intentions of his subjects. So we have the king who has no idea what his subjects think about him, and uh, by the help of a given prayer, he could figure it out. Also, if we are not the ruler himself, we are just uh, average courtiers, we might want to know what our uh, senior wants to do, how we can survive in the very complicated political context of a medieval court, and uh, magic texts offered all kinds of means for such purposes. So we see that such texts uh, could have been useful or could have been seen as useful by the medieval courtiers. And we have external evidence, of course, that they were indeed used. Now, how frequently, I can't tell you. It's very, very hard to show, even though we have many examples. We Mm -hmm. have really many examples from the Middle Ages, but of course we have uh, much more examples when magic was not used. So it's very hard to tell the proportion of uh, such uh, practices. We know that in the 15th century, uh, astrology was used uh, basically everywhere. But how much magic was widespread as compared to astrology is very hard to say. Probably it was not as widespread as astrology. We know that astrology uh, was studied at various universities. Magic was never studied openly at universities. So there's, there's a great difference. The ruler who uses divination to see his subjects' thoughts, a world where public officials care about the opinions of the people, is a very different world indeed. (laughs) At least I think so. But uh, we'll have to take a short break for now. We'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Chris Milke, and joining us today is Dr. Benedict Lang. Thank you very much for uh, being our guest today. Thank you again for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. I first heard about you from your publication, Unlocked Books, which is talking about texts, particularly in a Central and Eastern European context, that contain various sorts of magic, like a crystallomancy, looking at mirrors, things like that. Would you mind telling, just starting off very generally, with a little bit about the type of texts that you worked with in this book? So it all started as an MA thesis. I wrote my MA thesis on medieval astrology in uh, East Central Europe, but basically in Poland. And then I was sitting in a library in Krakow, and I asked for a manuscript, uh, which was, when I opened it, it was a big, beautiful, colorful manuscript. It was full of texts which were clearly not astrologic. It was full of magic texts. And this was uh, a manuscript uh, which was completely accessible for university students in the second half of the 15th century. And and this struck me because it seemed to me that we had magic texts which were accessible, even though we would suppose today that such texts uh, should have been hidden or locked or chained. We know that in the Middle Ages many books were actually chained, but most of them, just for practical reasons, these were books of common use, and uh, the 
librarians, they don't want the students, the readers, to take the books uh, with themselves. But some of the medieval manuscripts were chained and hidden and locked because of their content. Mm -hmm. And some of them were locked because of their magical content. By the title Unlocked Books, I want to express that the books which are in my monograph are texts, manuscripts, about which we would expect that they should have been hidden, but they were in fact not. They should have been condemned, forbidden, but in fact they were accessible for medieval readers. And originally this was a working title, and not being a native speaker, I always expected that someone will correct me and someone will tell me that Unlocked Books is not a good title, so you should change it. But somehow no one came to me, and uh, it went through the, the whole process of editing and publishing the book. Several times I asked native speakers if they can suggest me a better title, or they can uh, say something that expresses better what I want to imply with this title. And they said that, no, no, it's okay. It more or less expresses what, what you want to say. So this remained the title. But basically what the book is about is all kinds of medieval magic texts, natural magic, image magic, divination, angel magic, crystallomancy, and a little bit of alchemy, all kinds of medieval magic texts which were more or less openly accessible in the Central European university or courtry or monastic libraries, uh, mainly in the 15th century, and a bit before and a bit after, but the main focus is on the 15th century. Basically, we are speaking about Krakow, Prague, and Buddha. Before we go any further, I have to ask, you mentioned that these books were concealed, that there were these libraries that kept them. Why weren't they destroyed if the content was dangerous? That's a very good question. Probably many of the books were destroyed. Just the destroyed books were destroyed and we don't have them anymore, so we don't see and we can't even judge the proportion of, uh, of the destroyed texts. Okay. But some of the texts were destroyed just a little bit. So, for example, I had several image magic texts, talismanic magic texts, which explain how, with the help of a given set of characters, you can turn to a specific celestial agent, uh, a spirit, and with his his help, you can uh, well, become invisible, for example, or you can make someone detestable for the others. So you can achieve all kinds of not very kind aims. Mm. And a later reader, but still a medieval reader, tried to make the characters illegible. So tried to destroy just one part of the text. All the instructions survived, but the characters are crossed out. I see. So there was an attempt to destroy such texts exactly because they were seen as dangerous. Now, what is very funny on the other side is that when you have uh, such sets of characters and you suppose that they have to be copied very carefully with the same forms, with the same geographical forms, and also the instructions should be copied very carefully, exactly how they were written in the original manuscript. What we see in the Middle Ages is that uh, scribes were extremely careless. <laughs> uh, so they changed spirit names. They changed the letters in, in the names. And there we have all kinds of textual traditions 
traditions. They didn't really pay attention. The same with the talismans, where you would suppose that a given talisman, a given image, should be copied exactly as it was drawn in the original manuscript. But they didn't care about that. (laughs) So on the one hand, we have a clear intention of destroying dangerous texts. On the other hand, we have the Keras scribes who copied all kinds of things without really paying attention to the to the content. And uh, that is why the texts survived in a great variety of variations. When the Reformation came to England, for instance, and a lot of the, the holy statues were just, or, or images were destroyed at idols, there are a lot of cases where only two parts of the images are targeted. One is the eyes, sometimes the whole face, but definitely the eyes were destroyed, and the hands. Usually the hands were making some sort of gesture of benediction or blessing, and if you wanted to destroy the idol's power, destroying the eyes and the hands were seen as enough. So I think in terms of the relationship medieval people had with these sort of supernatural objects and images that in some cases for the book where the letters were scratched at, I think just erasing the characters essentially destroyed the power of the book, and you could make the argument that that was as good as tossing it into a fire. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Well, what you said is is really interesting, but we are clearly before Before, all all these arguments and debates, and what we see is that in the Middle Ages, such practices were sometimes criminalized, but much less than in the second half of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. So I agree with other medievalists who emphasize that the Middle Ages were a calm period. Of course, you have a few people executed, you have such, a bit of witch hunt and everything, but this was much calmer than the early modern period as far as such arguments and condemnations are concerned. And I think that a lot of what happens in this 16th and 17th and even 18th century gets extended further back to say that people in the 13th century were gearing up for their witch bonfire every fortnight or so, which really does, from court cases, from chronicles, from the books that you talk about, really does not seem to reflect the reality of the quote-unquote high middle ages Exactly. And uh, there is one more factor, namely the 19th century, which Mm. uh, loved to see and to portray the Middle Ages as a most superstitious and dangerous period, which was full of stupidities when people believed that Earth is flat. We know, of course, that uh, basically no one in the Middle Ages believed so. So uh, late 19th century was obsessed with the stupid Middle Ages. And uh, this reinforced, strengthened the already existing tradition that you just mentioned that since the late 16th century, 17th century, Middle Ages were portrayed as superstitious, magical, which was full of witches. We know that in the 13th, early 14th century uh, there was a very low number of uh, witchcraft accusations. Right. I did want to ask about the sort of magical connections between essentially Prague, Krakow, and Buda. Can we see sort of um, sharing of knowledge between the three centers in Eastern, Central Eastern Europe? Clearly, as far as various branches of science and astrology are concerned. So astrologists were traveling freely, and those who were trained in Krakow, because in Krakow we have an astrology department in the second half of the 15th century, those astrologists, astrologers came to Buddha, went to the paper court, and also to Prague, and they traveled freely to Vienna, and also the Buddha court had astrologists from Vienna. So there was 
a sort of cooperation, mm-hmm. and these people traveled a lot. As far as magic is concerned, no such cooperation can be documented because we have much, much less sources and we have much historical actors. So this cannot be really pointed out. There was some travel between East Germany and Krakow, for example. So we have German students who went to Krakow, learned actually astronomy and astrology, but also copied a great number of magic texts. Then they went back to Germany and to various German lands, and they further copied such texts. So this shows quite well how medieval magic manuscripts were traveling, Mm -hmm. how such texts and methods could spread in the Middle Ages by personal contact, of course. But uh, no real cooperation can be pointed out, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. between the Visegrad (laughs) courts. (laughs) And uh, I was already very glad when I could point out very small cooperations, local cooperations between several university students or several uh, court uh, members. This was already quite interesting for me that I could document the existence of some groups who were interested in magical treasure hunting or in uh, invocations of demons uh, in the middle of the night and under very romantic circumstances. And uh, this can be pointed out to a certain extent. Uh, I have several such examples. Unfortunately, I couldn't point out cooperation on a larger scale. So it's it's more sort of um, in regards to the city intramural context. The article that you had a while back on the um, King um, Wadoslav manuscript, consulting the angels and the crystals of this one or possibly three Polish kings and trying to propose ideas of who might have assembled the manuscript together is one a great example of that and two shows that in spite of the lack of information, there's still a lot that can be discovered from looking at these issues. Exactly, and this is a wonderful source, which is, by the way, now in the Bodleian Library, but it was originally made in uh, Krakow in the 15th century. This is one of the sources which shows that East Central Europe was not only a territory which imported magic texts from the West, but it also produced texts which are entirely original and very strange. This very text that you mentioned, the prayer book of King Radislas, has been known. The first uh, publications appeared a uh, hundred years ago, and the text edition is also quite old. So Polish scholars were aware of its existence, but the larger public didn't know about it. And the other interesting thing is that these Polish scholars who published the text tried to figure out what the origin of uh, this or that prayer was, and they found many such texts, but they didn't know the very interesting medieval angel magic text, the Liber Visionum of John of Morini, which was discovered just recently, a decade ago. And as a cooperation of North American scholars and myself, we could point out that the prayer book of King Radislas goes back to this Liber Visionum of John of Morini, which was, as I said, an angel magic text, extremely interesting, which is just under publication right now. It has an interesting prologue, which there's a lot of details about how magic was transmitted in the Middle Ages and how uh, monks could practice prayers, magic prayers, how they could practice angel magic through the Liber Visionum. The prayer book of King Radicus is one of the beautiful examples which shows that East Central Europe is worth such a research, uh, such a comparative research. Definitely. It's, it's very fascinating. Unfortunately, we will have to take a short break, but we will be back momentarily.
Hello there and welcome back. This is Chris Milke, and today joining us is Dr. Benedict Lang. We've been having a very good talk so far about magic in Eastern Central Europe, so thank you very much for uh, joining us and giving us your expertise. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I wanted to, to talk in this particular section about some of the work that you've been doing a bit more recently on cryptology and symbols. You said it's mostly in the 16th and 17th century. I'm not quite as familiar with this, so would you mind uh, giving us a sort of general overview of uh, what sort of things you're trying to look at? So what happened to me is that after 10 years or even 12 years of magic studies, I changed topic and <laughs> uh, and I changed the, the research period as well. It was not a conscious decision. It just happened to me. You know, even though magic sounds really exciting and very interesting for the general public, the research itself is just as technical as any other kind of research related to the Middle Ages. So it's just philology and social history, which was exciting. But after 12 years, mm -hmm. uh, it was sort of, I, I, I don't know, I, I felt like doing something else. Fair enough. And by complete chance, I was just reading a book on uh, the famous Voynich manuscript, which is a very well-known yes. secret manuscript, which might be a cipher or might be an artificial language. No one knows, but there are many email lists and many amateur and not-so-amateur people who want to figure it out. And when I was reading this manuscript, a colleague of mine, who graduated from the CU, by the way, mentioned that we in Hungary have actually a similar manuscript, but no one is really interested in that. Really? And this is when I started working working on the so-called Codex of Rohonds, which is, in fact, in uh, Hungary, in the uh, library uh, manuscript reading room of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. But we have no idea whether it had anything to do with Hungary or not. So today we keep it, but it might come from uh, any other place in Europe. And this is a late 16th century or early 17th century, quite thick manuscript, 450 pages, full of unknown signs and pictures. The pictures are clearly biblical pictures, but uh, we don't know anything about the content. And since before me, only a few scholars were interested in this manuscript, I thought that, uh, that this was waiting for me, so I, as the first real scholar, will solve it quickly. And for years, I tried to solve it, and some of my friends were already worrying for me if I am <laughs> still uh, already insane or I can still come out of this research field. Slowly, I could figure out more and more details related to this manuscript, and uh, after several years, I realized that I'm not going to solve it. And actually, today, uh, I know the reason. It was basically not a cipher. It was something different. But when I realized that I'm not going to solve it, I decided that first I write uh, an article on it, and then a whole book, a popularizing book, which is accessible for the wider audience and which can be read easily. It was published in Hungarian, but now I'm just getting it translated into English because I believe that this is something that might be interesting for many people. Yes, this is the first I'm hearing of it. It sounds fascinating. It was not yet uh, advertised. After that, I started working on early modern cryptography, and I tried to collect as many enciphered sources from the 16th, 17th century as possible. In the beginning, I concentrated on uh, Hungary, which was a very dynamic country in, uh, well, in, in the good 
good and in the best sense of the word in the, in the 16th, mm-hmm. 17th century. Right. But as a result of this dynamism, all kinds of sources were enciphered. So the source material is huge. And uh, I wanted to do something quite similar to what I did with magic texts. I want to write, and I, I just finished uh, my book on the social history of cryptography. So I was very much interested in not only the technical details, but also who were those people who actually enciphered letters, for what purposes did they use them, was there anything outside diplomacy and military actions, because of course uh, ciphers were mostly used in diplomacy and in uh, in the military field and in politics, but I managed to document that uh, ciphers were also used for all kinds of civil purposes, in love letters, in personal diaries, to encipher scientific content or alchemical content and uh, all kinds of other purposes. So this is what I did, and now I just want to enlarge my research for whole Europe, because this is a field which has been researched very well, but we basically have case studies and very few overviews on early modern cryptography. The last uh, really good overview was published 50 years ago by David Kahn, and uh, we should do something that is a bit fresher. With cryptography, you think of it as something elaborate, like James Bond type of scenario where there's all this international glamour and glitz and all of these important huge things resting on it. But they're common about the love letters. That's the sort of thing where, like, I think every kid practices making up a code of some kind for people who are literate and have the means to create a sort of coded language like that. There are plenty of reasons to conceal very pertinent information like that in a variety of everyday circumstances. Exactly. This is the main reason why ciphers were so widespread in the early modern times. But the same motivations existed in the Middle Ages, and still from the Middle Ages we don't really have so many such sources survived. The technology was much simpler, and it was much easier to break it. So everything that was before 1400 in Western Europe belongs just to the prehistory of cryptography, and that's not really interesting. Mm-hmm. Serious political centers didn't use cryptography. They rather tried to hide the messages. It was only in the 15th century, with the rise of Italian diplomacy, that really good, reliable methods were applied. And parallel to this, there is a growing quantity of civilian uh, use of uh, cryptography, as you just uh, said. And this is very similar to what what is going on uh, today. Everybody uh, comes to me and keeps me asking, but okay, also when I was a child, I prepared this or that uh, code language, and and, uh, whether it's interesting or not. Uh, From the early modern times, probably this kind of source existed, but we don't have them anymore. What we have is usually when a nobleman or when uh, an important diplomat used cryptography for his own purposes, Mm -hmm. for his Mm -hmm. own non-diplomatic purposes. In terms of written culture in the Middle Ages, it, it shows a really interesting change because a lot of sources we have from the Middle Ages, I mean, yes, we have grand chronicles, yes, we have church material, and we also have charter and legal documents, but for people living in the towns, I mean, usually what the sort of things that we have written by them are 
account books that are things like today I purchased 2,000 prunes and grocery lists, amounts of money owed to whom, where there's no need really to encipher that sort of information. My question also related to that is that um, in the 15th century, the impression that I get is that there's a general rise in sort of literacy across all sort of social strata. Do you think that the development of ciphers in this period is related to that? Definitely. It is definitely related, and that's one of the reasons why the early modern times are so much different from the Middle Ages. And for me, uh, being a a medievalist, it's uh, very exciting that the quantity of sources is so much bigger. When you are a medievalist, you can collect, uh, depending on your research field, but you can collect everything that is relevant to that specific topic. And what you do sometimes is just that you reread the same source material that others have already read, but you perhaps can interpret it in a better way. Well, of course, it's not always the case, but often. In the 16th, 17th century, the source material is so huge that uh, you can very easily find sources that no one has uh, ever paid attention to. And it's scaring, uh, but also <laughs> exciting. And now I'm just uh, in the period when I find that exciting. I know that <laughs> very I might go back to the Middle Ages because it's uh, so much safer. Now, in any way, as you said, the rise of cryptography is related to the spread of literacy and, of course, also to the rise of diplomacy. And these are two processes which played a very important role in the rise of cryptography. What I find exciting is that we can identify interesting motivations besides just the hiding of the content of a text. Because, of course, with cryptography, you hide the content. But sometimes they don't really want to hide. For example, we have ciphers in magic texts, which sort of call the reader's attention that here we have something exciting. Even though they hide the content with the use of cryptography, but they also very often provide the key to this cipher so the reader can uh, decipher it very easily. Uh And with the use of ciphers, the author, the scribe, just try to call the reader's attention that, look, this is very exciting, very mysterious. You want to read this. And also we have other kinds of motivations. For example, when uh, in personal diaries, I have several such examples, someone enciphers his problems with uh, drinking. Uh, Mm -hmm. He drank too much. Then he decided that he he will give up drinking wine. And then he takes note that, well, he didn't manage. (laughs) He wanted to to be abstinent for 30 days, but he managed it only for two days. (laughs) And then, uh, again, uh, he takes note that uh, he's feeling sick because he drank too much. And these notes are enciphered in an otherwise legible, very boring diary. Or I have another example when someone takes a note in ciphers that uh, his wife spent the night with their guest. And actually, we know that uh, the given wife uh, was already pregnant and quite in the middle of her pregnancy when she actually accorded her husband. In these cases, the use of cryptography is rather related to shame than to the intention of hiding the text because these informations are not really hidden. If you want, you can decipher it quite easily. The methods were not that sophisticated. But if you don't feel like deciphering them, then you find the key 
usually at the end of the diary. So these informations are not very, very, very hidden. They are hidden if you just peep in the diary, right. which uh, happens uh, often because these were personal diaries kept by their owners. They traveled together with their diaries. So against such peeping, the ciphers could be useful, but basically they were easy to break, and the use is more related, as I said, to the shame mm-hmm. of the author mm-hmm. than to traditional cryptographical motivations. It's a question that gets raised if you're concealing something, be it an information, be it a very sort of personal uh, problem. I mean, the question is, who are you concealing from? And in this and in this case, if a lot of people are taking a, a look and leafing through, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want the scullery maid knowing your dirty laundry. Exactly, and that's why the social history of early modern cryptography is so complicated to reconstruct because I have to identify the content of the text, the motivations of the owner, and the people who are sort of targeted by the ciphers, the people who are not supposed to read, whether uh, this was just the guy who transmitted the letter or the diary, or whether this, this was the black chamber of the Austrian court. Mm-hmm. You see, the, the means are different if you want to hide from this or from that purpose. We'll have to take a short break, but we'll be back with the end of the show momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. Chris Milke here, and uh, joined today by Dr. Benedek Lang. We've had a really interesting discussion so far, and it's uh, unfortunate that it has to end, but uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you before we end the broadcast, something that maybe the listeners might uh, be interested in, is the notion of sort of what else needs to be done regarding cryptography research. You mentioned earlier the fact that the handbook is really quite outdated at this point. Um, Are there any sort of directions that need to be taken or challenges that need to be addressed in the study? Fortunately, history of cryptography is a growing field, and we have a huge, not not huge, but quite a big conference every second year in Laurel, Maryland. And we also started having conferences in Europe, but only a few of them have been organized. And we have a very good uh, journal entitled Cryptologia in the last more than 30 years. And in this journal, there are many extremely interesting case studies. The only problem is that most of the scholars are working on 20th century or on 19th, 20th century material. Mm -hmm. And there are only a very few early modernists, like a thousand or perhaps 20, not more, who are active now. But there are more and more of them. But still, I believe that early modern cryptography is a much more interesting field, which is not yet completely covered. The monograph published by uh, David Kahn, I think it was very well written. So even though it's a very old monograph, we go back to it because it's extremely helpful and useful. And when I say that something new should be done, it's not a critical remark towards this book. I'm just saying that there were so many good case studies published Mm -hmm. since then that now there is time for a new integration. And what I personally find uh, exciting and worth to be done is the so-called social history of cryptography, which deals not only with the content, not only with the technical parts of uh, how things were enciphered and uh, how they were broken, how black chambers were set up, with what methods they were operating, but also the, uh, the social background of this practice, the reasons why people turned to this means, and uh, the transfer of knowledge. 
From where did they import their methods? Did they read these methods in the in the handbooks or not? So I think there is a huge number of uh, exciting questions that should be addressed, and uh, I'm just trying to set up a larger scale cooperation of European historians of crypto history of cryptography. We hope to be able to answer these questions. I think I can speak for myself and the listeners when we say we eagerly anticipate what you all find. Dr. Lang, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for this nice interview. It's been a pleasure. And for the listeners back home, once again, we thank you very much for tuning into our show. Please be sure to visit us on the web at medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for listening.